Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is not a diving podcast. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Right, we're back on a regular schedule. The last three episodes were recorded live at IMS in Ibiza. So they were a little bit different to regular episodes. But this week we're back in the studio, back on our regular schedule of episodes. And um, yeah, just before we get started, actually, I just got to say that we are moving into the last week of of Hot Flush 20 parties. So this has been rumbling on for the last couple of months. Had some really, really fun nights. Really awesome nights, actually. And we were in Newcastle last Saturday in the UK, which is a lot of fun at Cobot Studios. But this week, we have, like I said, the last couple. So Culture Box in Copenhagen this Friday and La Cheetah on Saturday in Glasgow. Friday night is with Orla. And on Saturday, I'll be playing back-to-back with Nightwave all night at the Cheetah in Glasgow, as I said. So check the link in the show notes for advanced tickets and all the info for those shows. And yeah, hope to see some of you down there on the dance floor. Like I said, it's been super fun doing those parties to celebrate 20 years of a label. And um, yeah, last couple. We might do some more later in the year, but this is the first leg finishing up. And like I said, yeah, has been awesome. Been really good. So... As I said, back on a regular schedule, back in the studio. This week, we have a conversation with someone who I've wanted to have on the show for a long while. I played his parties in New York City years and years ago. And in fact, I played a whole load of them over over a number of years. Those were black market membership parties. And his name is Tamer. He currently lives in Miami, running a record shop called Teabag, runs a label called Black Market Music. 
and is just a kind of quintessential scene guy on the East Coast, I guess, of the States. Black Market membership was just amazing. It was mostly done in underground venues, warehouse venues, which is to say unlicensed venues. And it really blew my mind the first time I went there and played for them in this crazy space in lower Manhattan, actually. It wasn't in Brooklyn. Most of them were in Brooklyn, but they did some parties in Manhattan too. And yeah, that first one I played went through till like 11 in the morning or something on Sunday and just crazy. I don't know how they managed to do it. That's one of the one of the answers I tried to get out of Tamar in today's conversation is how they managed to do that. And um, kind of got some way towards finding out. But yeah, they were truly amazing though. And it was great to be part of that over, like I said, a number of years. We did a whole bunch of substance nights. That was my night that I did at Burkine. We did a yeah a bunch of those with those guys in New York and yeah just great great stuff so yeah someone I wanted to add on for a while it's um, really interesting conversation today covering lots of different stuff covering those parties but also covering the state of vinyl today you know as I said he runs a record shop and the state of the United States scene more generally so yeah really good one before we jump into that just a reminder that you can support the show on Patreon there are two tiers first of which is four bucks a month which gets you bonus podcasts and just the knowledge that you're supporting us. So if you're feeling the need to support us directly, then that's the way to do it. There's another tier, however, a bit more expensive. It's 10 bucks a month. Gets you on the Hot Flush promo list, all the music that we release ahead of time in high-quality download formats and other music too, some of which is exclusive, never released anywhere else. We also have a private area of our Discord server dedicated for patrons, and we do interesting stuff there too like run remix projects we are running a remix project at the moment where we put up a bunch of stems each month and yeah do remixes compare our work so it's just a nice community to be a part of really so if you want to support us like i said that's the way to do it patreon.com slash scuba official we'd love to have your support there if not that's also cool leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast that'd be nice of you and you can join that discord server like i said link in the show notes you don't have to be a patreon member to get in the discord server it's hotflushrecordings.com slash discord to get into that okay i'll stop prattling on without further delay here is tamon tamon welcome to the show how you doing sir i'm doing good man thanks for having me um it's been a while that we've spoken properly so i appreciate you having me on your on your podcast yeah absolutely man good to speak so i wanted to kick off with talking about the record shop that you're running at the moment in miami so well you were were the head buyer at halcyon for a number of years right in new york yes correct yeah yeah from 2008 till 2014 um so a good six years yeah okay so uh I guess there's a few lines of inquiry here. Like, we want to talk about sort of maybe the differences between the scenes in Miami and New York more generally. But like, just in terms of selling records, like, what's it like running a record shop these days? You know what? I kind of, for a long time, was just thinking about opening a record store, and it was the pandemic where nobody could do anything. That really sat down with my wife to figure it out and um you know i was kind of hoarding records on the side and just saying okay i'm going to open a record store one day record store so there's like three thousand records that were i was just collecting for the store when it was going to supposedly open but you know we kind of april 2021 we opened the shop in miami above a thrift store and 
I'm really glad that I did it because it's something that I learned just from living in New York over the years, just from collecting records since 99 when I moved to New York, um, you know, where the buyers put the records in your hands. Um, and I've kind of got my hand on the pulse in terms of, you know, what the older records are uh, from just buying it on different genres and also what's new and popular today. So it's a mix of both at the store. Um, we're not a really big shop. It's about 225 square feet. So it's really like bombs after bombs of records. You know, the, there's no time for any fluff or any mediocre records. <laughs> so, yeah, who are your customers? Like, who buys records these days? There's a lot of vinyl DJs, man. I'm actually seeing kind of, you know, the younger generation uh, picking up records. I've got a lot of regular clients uh, from all over the world that, you know, who come into town. A lot of the DJs that I met along the lines of throwing the parties in New York for the black market days, they're still friends and we still keep in contact. So they're coming into Miami and playing gigs for a bunch of promoters. So they're always stopping over at the store, um, you know, staying an extra day or two just to come and dig. So I have all those clients as well. So is it primarily DJs? It's DJs, yeah. But there's also people that it's kind of interesting where they come in and they're buying records, but they're like, hey, I don't have a turntable yet, but they're building their collection to get that turntable one day. There's also, you know, people that come in to buy albums you know like we have a bunch of ambient and electronica stuff as well so people that are listening to at home there's djs and and new kids that are getting into vinyl as well okay because i mean like the sort of received wisdom like certainly in the uk market now is that it's primarily a sort of collector's market in terms of vinyl like is that something that a sort of broad trend that you've seen maybe like since you were running Halcyon up to twenty fourteen? Has it has there been sort of changes in that in that direction that you've observed too? Um, you know now obviously the, a lot of record labels are pressing anywhere between two hundred and let's say three hundred four hundred minimum right. So your quantities are less than what they used to be back in the day. You know like the late nineties or so forth when I started buying. So. Obviously, the digital era has changed things a lot, but it's kind of like when the record comes out, if you don't get it, it's gone, you know? So it kind of creates this hype that I need to purchase the record right away. Um, I kind of like it. Um, it keeps the quantities uh, less. Uh, we buy, obviously, less quantities than what I used to buy at Halcyon. I remember when the Levon Vincent and um, records used to come out. We used to get easily 100 copies of each and just move them in two weeks. But now I'm looking at a regular record, maybe two copies. If it's a hot record, maybe like five, six copies. If it's a really, really hot record, maybe 20 copies. So Okay, so what kind of labels do well on vinyl? I mean, so I'm, that, I think that's a broad question, but with the caveat that or with the observation that most like most labels that are catering to DJs these days, I mean, as you kind of like hinted at there, like digital is the main focus and it can be pretty difficult 
to sell. I mean, like you, and you're absolutely right in saying that if you're pressing 300s and you catch a bit of hype, then yeah, those can go quickly. But at, at the same time, it's quite easy to press 300 and then you're still stuck with them because like the liquidity of the market is just not quite there, you know. Because you also run a label, which we'll get into, and the label is is vinyl only, isn't it? Your label, the black market. Yes, label. correct, correct. So, is, yeah. do you find that labels that really focus on vinyl are the ones that shift, or are there also labels which are managing to you know do a good business on both sides? You know, it's it's hard to tell because there was. I'll give you an example, like. When the pandemic happened, a lot of vinyl only labels, you know, to make money, they went digital to, to get some sort of revenue. But today there's even like vinyl only labels, which after a couple of months, they release the digital or there's some that even, you know, they release the vinyl and then they have the digital at the same time. So in those kind of cases, I kind of do some research where I don't get as many copies because, you know, as you, as you're saying, it just ends up sitting at the shop. So you kind of have to really be careful on, on those records um, and getting like too many for the store. And like with, with the average vinyl buyer, like if, like how much, well, how savvy is the average buyer when we're, with, um, we're talking about vinyl only product, for example, like you know, what you just said there about how vinyl labels in some cases have gone digital, like how much does that detract from the marketability of that vinyl product, would you say? Uh, you mean in terms of what sales or? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, how, like, how much does the average vinyl buyer when they when they buy what is ostensibly a vinyl only product, like, if it then becomes available digitally, does that really detract from the perception of that label, the perception of that release? Do you, I mean, if you see what I mean? It's like, um, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I, I I don't think it takes away anything. You know, there's there's a lot of labels where they they press the record and then inside the record they it comes with like a uh, a download code. You know, for for the digital. So there's labels that work in different ways. You know, there's some strictly vinyl, some just both, or some just digital. You know, so it's really up to the preference of the DJ what they want. You know, I've even you know if I have a record. And it goes digital. And if I'm traveling, I'll get the digital if I'm taking other specific records to play, you know, for example. Mm. Okay. I mean, but does that kind of um, kind of vinyl purist mentality persist to, to any kind of significant extent? There's, yes. There, there, there are DJs that are just strictly vinyl. Um, and, you know, I, it really, it's really how you play at the end of the day. So I kind of like the vinyl enthusiasts because I'm a vinyl guy myself for a long time. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think it's really up to, up to you what you prefer. Um, I just like the feel of having the record and being able to mark it with a Sharpie or have, uh, you know, have, have, have like the, the artwork as a reference and kind of dig. It's like where, where I put stuff on a USB, even if I've named the folder and, you know, say like hour one, hour two, or like peak time or whatnot, I kind of get lost in looking at the CDJ on the screen and just kind of flipping through the folders, even though I've marked like each track the way I wanted it to be. So for me, it's uh, it's less less pain on the eyes, if you want to say that. Yeah, I mean, this is like just the eternal scrolling, right? Through, through the- eternal scrolling, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay, so... 
with the label, um, was it was that was was being vinyl only something that you like? Was that the kind of no, a no brainer for you? Was it something which was always built into wanting to start that and having it as a vinyl only thing? Yeah, I just never got into the digital part. Um, I just kind of liked the aesthetic of having the vinyl only. Um, you know, this is my second label that. I have the first one was based under the the party name Black Market Membership, which uh, the label stopped in 2017, and the new one started in 2018, which was a you know kind of continuation of the name. So it's called Black Market Music, and I've been running it till today, and it's been going good. You know, we're on the 13th release, which is set to come out in August. Um, and I've just got another edits label that's coming out as well. So, as I said, like, was the, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get out of here is like, to what extent is vinyl uh, something which is, um, I guess, attractive in of, its, in of itself? I mean, like, you just mentioned that how there's, um, you know, practical advantages when DJing. But like, I guess like vinyl is oftentimes... Well, it, it seems to have an almost kind of mythical appeal for the people who are really into it. And like, I mean, is that something that you kind of identify with or, or does that resonate with you at all? Uh, not so. An almost kind of intangible appeal. Do you know what I mean? Though? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I, I think it's just really comes down to, um, you know, obviously when, when you go and perform and you have vinyl, not every setup is good, right? Um, so I think... I think at the moment there's a big comeback with vinyl, uh, 100%. I just find so much music that's coming out on records that I just don't find digitally. And there's a lot of people that are kind of very going strictly vinyl. Um, you know, there's the ones that are doing both vinyl and digital. Um, I guess, you know, there's a lot of countries where the outreach, they don't have record stores, you know, so I get it, you know, so for those people, they like it, but, I'm getting, for example, a lot of kids from, uh, you know, Central and South America that are coming to Miami and they don't have record stores there. And for them, it's just like, it's they're like kids in a candy store. And they love it, you know, and, they, and they're very in tune with with all the, the music that's come out, you know, with the Internet. It's really it's really fast to find out about new music right away, you know, from many channels, be it like online record stores, or I find Instagram is kind of like the new record store for me. I find so much music on there and just kind of um, get in touch with people and, and it's, it's cool, you know, because everything's like your access to uh, finding out new music is right at your fingertips. Yeah, okay. So, like what's the okay so you mentioned you know kids kids coming from south america to i mean obviously miami is sometimes described as the capital of, of latin america right but like what's the uh infrastructure of record shops like more generally in the united states because obviously um you know across the world like i mean the last 20 years have just been a you know a, just a, a catalog of of the kind of uh compression of the uh vinyl market if i can put it like that certainly the underground dance vinyl market like so many shops have, have closed and that's been just true in certainly in the european markets and i'm fairly sure in north america too so how healthy is it do you think right now for for record shops generally you know the the, the record stores across the u.s are in terms of what what i sell uh dance music 
it's not as big as the amount of record stores in Europe. You know, in Europe, obviously, there's way more out there. So this is a kind of question and a thing that I've been, you know, going back and forth in my head where it's like, okay, I press the records in the U.S., but then you know, distribution to Europe, they kind of go to all the major, you know, online dance stores like Clone or Juno or Rub-A-Dub, etc. Um, whereas in Europe, I think the outreach is far more better because say there's like, you know, a distributor that can hit 200 uh, dance music record shops, right? In the US, you probably got maybe... 20 to 30 stores that do buy dance music you know there's a lot of stores that more focused on rock or jazz or hip-hop but you know you see the number of difference right i think those stores here in the u.s they're they're kind of legendary like you know gramophone for example that's been there for a long time um there's record stores in New York that take, uh, you know, records from us. Like A1 is still there. There's a Human Head. Uh, uh, there's Academy Records Annex. Um, there's Selector Seattle in Seattle. There's uh, a Zion's Gate out there as well. There's Further Records. So I guess, you know, in terms of running a label and moving quantities, if you're a record label owner, uh, you know, if you're US-based label, I think Europe is where you're gonna have more move, for sure. There's definitely a better DJ culture, I mean, not DJ culture, vinyl culture in, in uh, Europe. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned there that you felt there's a kind of resurgence, and um, do you think, what, is it your observation that that's been felt at shops across the country? to the same extent yeah i mean just through reading and just through what i feel like um you know look in, in miami it's kind of like it's a pit stop for a lot of djs uh, and we have our basil and miami music week which are two very important kind of uh event weekends but a lot of people come before and after so that's kind of like our peak season um but then you've also got a lot of people coming to town for vacation so I think, you know, where Miami is located uh, to Latin America, you know, it's not far from New York. Uh, and I think a lot of the Europeans that do come here as well, it kind of creates like a, you know, our stores, it's small, as I mentioned, but, you know, we've just only been on Instagram and that's how we promote it. But the word's gotten out and a lot of people are like, hey, you know, I came from this country and I've heard about your store through this DJ or Instagram. And it's really cool to hear that because they're like, we've heard so much about your store and the records you have, um, your curation. And, um, you know, they really walk out with like a good amount of records because it's like, We've got all those records that the DJs want, you know, from the 90s, from the late 80s, in all kinds of genres to the current ones that come out. And we get them right away as well. So how much of the new stuff you get is imported from Europe? Um, I'd say probably like like 65% right now. 
And so like running, going back to running a label, I mean, does it make sense? Would it make sense for you to be pressing in Europe, do you think? I mean, is that something you've, been, you've considered? I have actually, and I, and I, I am going to do it because at the moment I've... We kind of took a, a year and a half break from the label. Um, you know, life happened. Um, and now I have so many releases from really cool artists that I've been accumulating that I'm going to be pressing here uh, uh, via Dietrich Schoenemann, who does my mastering and, and um, the whole job thing. And it goes through Archers in Detroit. And I'm going to be using One Eyewitness as well, kind of to have two plants and uh, distributors press my uh, uh, labels because that way I can move more uh, releases out quicker um, because I'm sure, as you know, the time, the timings now to get the vinyl pressed and uh, the wait time to get the final product has increased uh, drastically. Um, there's, there's also, I was... The last release I pressed here in Miami, there's a pressing plant called Sun Press Vinyl, and I used to work with them when I first moved to New York. Uh, when I first moved to Miami, and they since have got bought out, uh, and they're kind of pressing only lifestyle releases from their magazines. And you know, say if an artist that they showcase, okay, we want their record, their priority, so. I can't press here in Miami anymore, you know, and where it's like right here, the pressing plant, because of things like this. Um, what I'm getting at is basically a lot of the the major labels kind of has first dibs, you know, because they present a big paycheck. Um, they're going to press thousands of copies, and that's what a lot of pressing plants are taking in before independent labels. So, uh, well, from our own experience in Europe, actually, like with regards to the waiting times, it got completely crazy, but actually more recently it's come down a fair bit. So it's like, I think we got quoted this week, like 10 weeks for a turnaround, which is kind of palatable, you know, because we waited almost a year for one, at one stage, which is just completely crazy, right? <laughs> Man, I, I know, I know. Um, you know, I think my waiting time now is like five, six months, uh, which is not bad, uh, but it was like that where it's like 10 weeks, it's like 10 uh, you know, not 10 weeks, it was like eight months. And then it's going in your head, you're like, okay, should I release digital? Should I not? No, no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. I mean, let's just go back to that. Like, so, like, do you see, so do, do you see the, like, the digital thing? Is that something you just, like, I almost ideologically don't want to do with your label? I've thought about it so many times, you know, just as in the scenario that I told you, you know, where like you're waiting and waiting, you're like, fuck, should I? Should I have done this digital? I'm going to do it digital. No, no, don't do it. Don't do it. So, um, you know, I think at some point I might, but for now I'm kind of happy with with what I'm doing, you know? I mean, how much is that... How much is it a case of almost like brand identity around a vinyl-only label? Do you, like, do you think it cheapens it a little bit, maybe, if you do digital? Um, it could, but, you know, I'm not one to say about that. Uh, I think, you know, if that's... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> But uh, I think if if you want to do it, do it. You know, um, I, I I don't hate on anybody that's doing both. You know, I think in terms of accessibility, uh, wider audience, uh, you know, you're gonna get more people with digital, obviously. But I think also if you're vinyl only, um, and people know about your label, they're gonna find your label and get it. You know, so uh, that's something that 
I was talking with Francis Harris uh, from Public Records about. He's like, look, he's like, if people want my label, they know where to find it. Yeah, I mean, I think like it seems like to me like a vinyl sale seems to be more valuable. I don't just mean in terms of money, just in terms of what that represents, so someone's commitment to your release. And I suppose uh, I would see. Like if you're talking about digital, like I think a digital sale on Bandcamp probably means more than you know X amount of Spotify streams or even a sale on Beatport, you know, because someone's been on your Bandcamp page and like I think the, the average person who uses Bandcamp is a little bit more committed to the individual music. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Right. Yes, I think like with the with the record, I don't know. It just feels it's like you got a plate, a disc in your hand. You've got really cool artwork. It's like you're reading the etching. You know, sometimes the hidden messages. It's just like overall, it's it's like this really cool piece. You know, and especially as um, you know, you've been pressing stuff with Hot Flush for years. When we used to stock it at Halcyon, it's uh, it's just the final product. It's just really like okay, I, it's finally done. And, you know, and it's out. And it's like okay, my new release is out. It's just like everything that follows with it is just like. You know, it's it's just something that makes you happy as an artist, as a label head. You know, like putting it out there. Uh, you know, in today's world on social media. You know, so people get fired up about it. You know, as much as you're fired up about it, people get excited about it too. You know. Yeah, I mean, like one of the things I've been thinking about recently is like obviously we've got this big AI explosion right now, and you know, there's obviously implications. Uh, for loads of different areas of of the arts, but I think with music, like there's a real potential for it to sort of turbocharge the effect of what we had in the last twenty years of just music becoming much easier to make generally, and and the volume of music that comes out. I mean, you know, digital music obviously has con- contributed a lot to this too. But like, I think one of the kind of pushback effects might be to all this maybe a movement where stuff like vinyl more tangible pieces of art right may become more highly valued and we might see a kind of resurgence and maybe the kind of resurgence you're talking about is linked to this too i think maybe this is something that might develop and maybe this could be a good like a silver lining to this ai thing i mean what do you think about that um yeah you know it's like uh i think this AI thing is actually pretty interesting. Um, I, I'm not so like I've just looked at it like here and there, but um, you know I'm seeing what it can do. Uh, I think you you know look at it this way like a lot of the older records that um, I'll give you an example like Steve O'Sullivan's label Mosaic. You know when when that came out back in the day. And they went to record shops. A lot of the record stores didn't understand it, right? So that label, for example, it just got kind of tucked away in like the discounted bins and everything. But then when people, the the, the new generation started coming out, and the sounds were very similar to what he was doing back then, those records became hard to find records and collectors' items, right? And then he came back as an artist, and you know. It's things like that where, you know, there's there's music coming out. There's a lot of music coming out right now, both digital and vinyl. Like way too much music. I I try to be on top of all of it, but as a as a human being, you physically can't know everything. It's impossible, right? So, I think with this AI thing, we're gonna see a lot more stuff. 
coming out. You know, I think with Ableton, since it's come out, you've seen a lot, it's a lot easier to make music on it for people compared to, you know, Logic and Pro Tools. Um, there's a lot of people learning how to do it. And these kids are making like bombs, you know, they're, they're making music. Like there's some 18, 19 year olds that are making like music that Doc Scott or, you know, Goldie was making and you're like, what the hell did you find out who they are? You're like, Jesus Christ, man. You know, this guy, <laughs> like, this is like some young prodigy, you know? And it, it's, it's cool. I, I like seeing that kind of stuff. But I mean, do you think that maybe the avalanche of music that's coming, I mean, there is already an avalanche as, you, as you've just described there, but I think there's a potential for uh, the AI thing to really just, like, like I said, turbocharge that, that process. And I, I wonder, maybe a reaction to that might be that the vinyl and, and those sorts of kind of physical manifestations of art might become more valuable to people as they kind of search for something that isn't just being churned out. Is, do you think that might happen? I, you know what, to be honest, I don't know the, I couldn't answer you that question because like, I'm still relatively new to that AI kind of world. I just, I just kind of started seeing how it works and, um, you know, how they're using people's voices and putting on different tracks. And it's kind of mind blowing, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, in terms of answering your question, I don't, I, I couldn't answer it because I haven't done as much research on it. Okay. Let's talk about Miami generally and what the scene is like there. Cause I mean, obviously you've got tons of experience promoting in, in New York and we're really kind of like deep in the scene there, but so having moved to Miami, I mean, I know you're not putting on events as you were in New York, but like, what is the club scene like in Miami right now? Maybe coming out of the pandemic, like what's the state of play right now in Miami? Uh, man, to be honest, there's a big lack of venues here. Um, and, you know, there's just like right now, there's not even a hand, like I can't even count the amount of venues like on my hands, you know, there's, there's about that many. There's probably three, four, five, you know? Um, but, that's that's kind of what I miss about New York. There was just so many venues. There's so many places to do it. It's like a concrete jungle where, like, you know, you could, you know, you used to come to our parties and play all the time. It was like warehouses, lofts, boats. There's nightclubs. And even now more so, New York is uh, good on that field. Um, I wish people would put their heads together here in Miami and open some really cool places, you know. there's I miss those audiophile kind of nightclubs with the sound system was amazing you know small intimate like you know like cielo there was uh, uh club love there was uh output was amazing as well you know those kind of venues where they really believed in you know programming the djs the staff was really good uh, you know here we've got uh, you know, friends that are running, uh, you know, like Treehouse, for example, or there's space. But uh, I feel here, you know, the having a DJ come and play extended sets, it's more so I see like lineups just getting stacked with headliner after headliner after headliner, you know. It's, uh, you don't get to see so much of that here in the city, to be honest. Uh, so I've kind of, I haven't been throwing parties like I used to do in in, uh, in New York, and I kind of went just focusing on music and the DJ route. And uh, you know, the shop for me was 
my way to kind of just stay on the pulse of underground music and put put that kind of music into you know kids hands and, and teach them about like what's what's good music you know yep and like how do you see the kind of underground dancing generally speaking in north america right now because i mean certainly coming out of the pandemic there's been various changes that i've seen uh in europe and kind of things which i kind of maybe put down to having had you know everyone having had 18 months completely not partying being out of it but what of the um yeah how do you see it generally like what's like do you think it's in a good place now generally north america or like what you know what the change has been do you think yes yeah paul i think north america is on the map um you know i'm really seeing really cool parties uh you know between New York, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Boston, uh, you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Uh, there's, uh, there's some really cool people um, that are pushing really cool concepts and events, um, you know, from tech house to electro to uh, minimal. Um, and I feel there's something for everyone, right? And a lot of these promoters or people doing events uh, there's also Pittsburgh too there's a, a lot of these different people are really kind of coming together and doing events together like there's festivals popping out you know out in the countryside there's uh, collaborations happening um, so I think a lot of the Europeans are loving coming to the US to come play at the moment you know um, I think uh, you know just seeing it from because I still have my hand on the pulse in terms of seeing what's coming up with music and who's playing where but you know the North American scene looks way better than it's been in in past years um, with an extension in all different states uh, you know obviously we can't forget Detroit as well um, that's a major part um, but yeah to answer your question it's it's doing good you know and, and it's really good to see that after a long time have there been like noticeable changes like for example in the audience i mean uh having been back to play in berlin for example a, a few times since reopening i've noticed that there's been a real turnover there's, there's a lot more young people like noticeably young people going out but also there's a slightly chain a slightly different culture whereby like people go out earlier and don't stay out quite as late so have there been any noticeable changes like since reopening that you've seen or noticed. Yeah, you know, it's it's actually cool that you brought that up because um, last summer I was in uh, Edinburgh um, and I was playing at this venue, Cabaret Voltaire, and I was talking to this girl outside and, she, you know, she was one of the staff members and she said she's been coming to this venue since, you know, she was like 20 years old. Um, and she told me, I said, so how do you find, like, is a lot more people coming after the pandemic? And I was asking her these questions and her response was actually really interesting because she said that when the pandemic happened, all that generation that was working there or clubbing, the older generation, they kind of like stopped going out. They stopped working there. They found different work and they left like clubland, like for the most part, you know, and rarely come out. And she's saying 
all the all the new staff or younger kids that have come in and, and to work you know uh, a lot of them didn't have the past that she had in terms of you know coming to the nightclub you know but they want to work in the nightlife scene so there's definitely been a change you know like i a lot of my friends that used to go out partying when that happened they kind of had to refigure out what the hell they're doing in life um and so and and uh, yeah i mean you know like as as with everybody i had to do it too you know that's why one of the reasons why the record store opened because you know if something like that happens again you know what are you going to fall back onto so i think a lot of these questions people ask themselves and it's they're looking for stability the the the, the world is <laughs> getting crazier and crazier by the day you know but i think you just got to just do you stop watching that tv nonsense and 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 really kind of just do you you know you only live life once so you have to really kind of make it happen right um so is that turnover of the audience something that's happened in the states too yes i i feel there's there's some there's a gap there's like a gap of people that's kind of like like gone you know mm. yeah 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 or they just don't abs- go out yeah that's absolutely yeah. the kind of the the stories that i've heard too right so it's like yeah just a, a quite yeah. a big uh chunk of the cohort which has just fallen off fallen out of the market as it were completely yeah yeah and then yeah as and as you say like a lot of the kids that have replaced them are coming in cold almost right so it's almost like a lot of the previous rules or the kind of etiquette or whatever is no longer observed and sometimes that can be a bit difficult, right, for those of us who uh, who remember the old days, right? That, yeah, but, but but you know what? It's like I think you you have to kind of adapt to the new times, right? So I think if uh, as any person, if you stuck with the past and you don't kind of uh, go with what's t- today's, uh, how do you say, like it, what's going on with today, it's a bit difficult, you know. I think. I think it's cool to have fresh blood in the scene, you know. I think it's cool to give other kids a chance, you know. Everybody started somewhere, right? Like, you know, you were once that person that didn't know anything in dance music, and now, as like as a seasoned veteran, you do know, and you know, you, you know more labels, you know about more clubs, you you meet more people from different scenes. Okay, this person runs that label, this person works at that nightclub, but. Uh, you know definitely there's there's this there's this gap it's like there's some weird like time capsule kind of thing where like those people are just gone you know i I don't know how to say it like but yeah yeah i mean everything sort of reaches the end of its natural life right and obviously the pandemic was a very uh it was a obviously extremely unusual event but i think it sort of like was almost a line in the sand right and there was always going to be some big heavy changes that came out of that probably Correct. So this sort of brings us sort of neatly to um, your journey into this stuff. So you mentioned earlier that you arrived in in New York in '99. Was it? Yeah. Um, my parents actually. Uh, my dad relocated from Karachi in Pakistan, and he moved to uh, Abu Dhabi next to Dubai in the Emirates uh, for work. And um, I kind of grew up there my whole childhood from 81 to 99. Um, 99, uh, I got accepted to a really good art school, uh, Pratt University, and I did graphic design. But at the same time, when I got there, you know, it was kind of the, the tail end of 
uh, Twilo, Limelight, Vinyl, Tunnel, and I got to kind of witness those clubs. And coming from like a thrash metal rock background and never seeing sound systems like that, DJs playing extended sets and like marathons, I was like, what the hell is this, you know? <laughs> and I, I just remember being so mesmerized by it. And that kind of was my introduction into nightlife and while i was going to school on the weekends i'll go to the clubs you know so it was it was really an amazing experience because you know you had analog stack speakers at at these venues and just complete freaks and but at the same time there was a lot of you know different crowds of people that were all together it was like this melting pot like at the nightclubs and um you know that for me when seeing them play records on those systems was like okay i think this is kind of what i want to gear to and do you know so yeah okay um can you be a bit more specific so do you remember the, the first moment at which that the sort of penny dropped as it were yeah so uh, w- when we were back home in abu dhabi right a lot of the kids who had graduated about two three years before us they all moved to like montreal uh, boston washington dc and all that but they all were talk about hey you got to go to this club twilo it's it's the bomb it's the bomb so literally when i arrived we would do this thing this is before like cell phones or anything um you know we had like the landline where i was but we would i think we had hotmail yeah we would email each other and we'd meet under the disco ball at Twilo. So everybody, everybody from those cities, like uh, like from DC or uh, Boston or Montreal, I was the only guy in New York. We'd all meet there, and it would be like you know the the, the guys who had graduated before us and like the ones who had graduated that year, and it was amazing. We would just stay there, get there at ten, and just close it out at at noon. And that was like, it was Sasha and Digweed. I remember the first time and I was like, man, this is incredible. Because I heard so much about them, but I never really, I never really was into dance music so much, you know, like, but that really kind of was like, okay, I get it now, you know? Right, yeah. So that's the era of those big progressive records, right? That Sasha and Digweed were playing. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I, that that probably still today, like, it was amazing, you know? I, I saw Junior Vasquez there as well. Danny Tanagla used to play amazing as well at, um, at at Vinyl, which then later became Arc, and then uh, Limelight as well had some really cool things as well. Uh, uh, Adam X and Frankie Bones, you know, out of New York, were a very influential and, and uh, amazing stuff that they were doing too. So, how much of it was the music, and how much of it was the kind of atmosphere? in those venues because I remember when I first started going out it was it was definitely a mixture of the two things I mean, maybe the sort of drugs in the clubs were a little bit more important at the, like in the first instance yeah so how was it for you well back then there was ecstasy right so uh, <laughs> more right. so and it was it was good you know <laughs> I won't lie but um, I think you know this this phone thing man it's so obnoxious like you go to an event or a thing and people are just filming and you know people are texting and hey how's that party we had none of that like i think at most very few people had cell phones then if that a pager you know what i mean so if you really needed them they had to go to the phone booth to give you a call (laughs) but but you know there was 
nobody had nobody had uh, was walking around with cameras. You know, if they, they did, they had like those Fuji, you know, the little cardboard cameras that you turn in and get developed. You know, but that was kind of like the beauty of it because you were there for the music and people were interacting. You know, everyone was really cool with one another. I feel now it's like uh, when I go to some shows, I really like the the clubs that enforce a no camera policy. I think it's great. The vibe is completely different, man. You know, uh, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, where people are standing there with their phones versus no phones allowed. Um, you know, as much as it's become a necessity for people, I think it's very obnoxious for you know when going to see concerts and and shows. Yeah, you definitely lose something from the atmosphere don't you I mean sometimes it's really overt and when everyone's just got their cameras out and filming but like it's also it can be a little bit more subtle as well you know like I think like when you've just got a hard no phones at all yeah and like it's just just no distractions whatsoever you definitely feel that in the crowd don't you? 100% man the energy is just a lot different you know um, but you know a lot of people use that for also their social media you know like there's a lot of stories of people posting in today's world but you know i think i think what i really miss you know from the from the golden days uh was and kind of what we implemented in our parties at black market in new york was you know the right venue sound is the most important thing you know you you have to lock people in there you know if you, you can say you have like a Danley or D&B or Martin Audio or Function One, you know, say on your flyer. But if you don't have that thing tuned right, it's going to sound like crap. And, you know, these sound systems back in the day, like the Phazon sound system at Twilo, for example, was incredible. Like it was like 3D sound system. They also copied the Larry, Larry Levan, Bertha Stacks uh, concept, you know, where you've got the bass bin, the middle, and then the tops, and then you've got the tweeters hanging up on the clubs. You know, th that for me is the ultimate kind of system. It just, the clarity, you hear every kind of range, frequency of sound, you know? And now it's like, you know, sometimes <laughs> sometimes parties you go there and it's like literally it's, uh, it's two JBLs uh, on 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 those uh, stands and like a sub. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, at what point did you start getting into buying records and uh, you know really engaging with the scene in much more of a kind of hands-on way? Um, since I started going to those nightclubs in New York, uh, when I arrived in New York in in the summer of '99, I. I found out all the record stores and actually back then there was a lot of record stores where, you know, there's one close by, I used to stay off the Classen Avenue stop on the G train and Halcyon, the shop that I ended up working for uh, in 2008, that was kind of like one of the first stores that I would go and buy it. Uh, and it was two or three stops on the G train from me. It was the closest record store. And the concept was really cool. You walk in, it's a cafe. They had antique furniture for sale. They had the record store in the back. They had a DJ booth that they would have, you know, live streams and stuff. Um, then they had a backyard, you know, to chill out. And then they had like a, a vegan, uh, like a bar uh, with food and, and drinks. But then you would go to Manhattan. You would take the, the G train and get off on... Um, 
you know, take it to the F train and swap, and you get down on the Lower East Side. And from there, they had satellite records uh, that was right there on the Lower East Side. And from there, if you walk up uptown uh, on the East Side, there was just one record store after another, you know. So there was satellite records. There was... Uh, dance tracks which is more housey satellite had everything like techno house trance like a lot of a lot of buyers there you know that um you know guys like ron like hell was one of the guys that sold me records um you know there was guys like ori they would sell you uh you know like the trance stuff there was the guys like astroglide like james ben where he would sell you the like the really wonky kind of lee burge kind of stuff and then dance tracks was strictly house records then you would have um Decadence, and that guy had really cool kind of progressive, trancey stuff. So every store had something different. That was the kind of excitement that I had where, like, I would go in, you know, I'm buying records, you know, for the first time, you know, like, just started DJing. And, and these guys, once they got to know you, they're like, yo, I got this record for you. Want it? Take it, you know? So you said once they got to know you, but, I mean, obviously the, the stereotype of the record shoppers they can be quite intimidating places when you first start going in especially when you're a kid right so was that was that much was there much of that going on in those shops? yeah 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 <laughs> oh yeah there, there were some guys that were just fucking dicks man you know so <laughs> straight, straight up the bat and then like i was like i was like yo man what the hell's your problem and then i'm like i'm kind of gonna buy records and then eventually once i got to know them they were cool you know but i kind of see that too you know there's like you know, if you don't really know what you're doing and you go in a record store and, you know, records get scratched, so these guys have to put up some sort of guard, you know, for the for the newbies. And it's it's like that, you know, it's like you can't be you can't be cool with everybody, you know, at first. It's like you gotta kind of have your boundaries, right? But it was just it was really cool, man. I wish you could see some of the people there. They were complete assholes. It's like, oh man, this guy <laughs> This guy is uh, something else. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the shops in London, like a big part of going into them, actually, especially as a sort of non-serious DJ, was actually picking up flyers and finding out what raves were going on. So was 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 that also true in New York in that era? Was that part of what? what yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we would go, they would have the rack with the flyers or, you know, when I first started events, I would make a round. I would go buy records, obviously, from the stores. Uh every wednesday was kind of like the new arrivals day, general new arrivals day in new york um and you know i would look at the flyers there'd be like rave flyers you know with uh with bones and adam x or then there was like okay sasha digweed's playing oh sven vaith is coming to town carl cox is here uh deep dish is playing there danny tanaglia marathon and um, then you would have like the smaller venues where like the locals are playing i was like okay cool let's go check those out too you know so it's it really was exciting place to go because you would meet other people in the scene and you know we in new york we had like this message board you remember message boards like where you, yeah that was like pre-facebook and everything where you would just chat and like okay who's going out here tonight or hey this record came out so they have different forums for all that so that was kind of another place you would meet people but I just like going to record stores, man. It's just, you know, the aesthetics, seeing cool new stuff that you haven't seen before, especially in different countries, because there's records coming out in different countries, which you don't necessarily get in the U.S., you know? So, and they're strictly in that place, you know? So, I, I, for me, it's like, 
it's a lot of knowledge walking in the record store and leaving out with extra knowledge which I didn't know you know and and there's always those stories you know from the buyers or like the record shop owner that you're like wow man this is so cool you know that that happened yeah so how do you go from that to wanting to put on your own events well New York's a tough place man and I was not getting any gigs like everyone's like yeah whatever whatever so I kind of had to make my own statement and I was like okay you know what I think I know pretty much what I need to do and then I teamed up with my former partner and we did it you know and it was really cool because at first we we could only afford like maybe bringing us one small headliner from Europe and then we were doing it at the time in 2006 at Element and Element was an old uh, uh, bank building right so downstairs was an old vault like a bank vault with you know the huge door with the clocks and the the screws and the wheels and everything Um, so we did it in there and then let me ask you about that because I mean like a feature of your parties is just getting these incredible venues some of which are licensed and some of which are not right so yeah right what was what was that was that one you guys found and then just put a party there was that a you know was that a established venue no yeah so it was a they decided to make it a dance venue and um, Sean Schwartz that was the owner of Halcyon his cousin Stephen who used to work with him at the old house young started working at this nightclub and he said hey i got a cool venue it's it's legit i think it'll be a cool place for you to start your party because i was talking to him about doing an event and we did it in that venue but we ended up we ended up getting sacked because the 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 venue didn't get what we were trying to do um they didn't understand the dance music and they wanted to be a hip-hop club and then uh guess what ended up happening with that club it went out of business you know so so okay we've, so we're in 2006 there's a kind of a, a big jump there so i mean you had you, you mentioned that you were studying graphic design so you presumably graduated and and was miss music like something that you like was it just obvious that you wanted to do that as a as a kind of living like was at what point did that kind of fall into place in your mind yeah it was kind of so from 2003 to 2008 um i was working at an advertising agency in manhattan and that got me my my visas at the time to stay in the u.s so um while i was doing all that i was still going out meeting people and then 2006 started doing the event and that was kind of like okay you know what I really want to do this and not have to work in the advertising world because it was a corporate job Um, and when the recession happened in 2008 that was a sign where it was like okay this is what you're going to do and we I got offered to be the head dance buyer at Halcyon because Derek Plasleko from Bunker was moving to Berlin and I obviously had a lot of knowledge on buying records for myself but I didn't know how to buy for the shop so Sean had taught me kind of the ropes of there who was the owner and that for me was a cool side gig on top of doing my events you know it got me it opened my doors to a lot of music that I would kind of have my hands on first, you know, um, and and kind of curate the shop. And, you know, that for me was really interesting because uh, I'd never done it before. So 
with that, you know, I think it was just the right thing to do at that time. I'm, I was really grateful for that because I ended up working six years for that store. But that kind of was like, it really helped propel, you know, what we were doing in terms of booking at Black Market, you know, having a lot of debuts for artists uh, that were coming in or starting residencies, you know. So you had, you had basically got to that position, I'm assuming, I'm reading between the lines here, essentially just by hanging out in the scene right and just talking to people and, and uh, yeah, over the kind of course of a number of years you become part of a scene right that's is it yes yeah exactly i think i just uh, i met everybody that i needed to meet the right people and the party had happened because um i was not getting many bookings you know so I had to create something of my own and and then that became something very interesting where those people that didn't want me to play started asking me to play and i was like okay <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> no, it's funny because i mean that's a it's a familiar story actually and this is true with people people starting labels because they you know no, no one wants to sign their music or as you say starting parties because they can't get a show and then if you do it right then people notice right people it's, notice right you know yeah so what was the vision for the for the party when you first when you guys first started uh, putting it together like what did you want to do well we wanted to create a residency for ourselves um and basically invite artists you know that are similar in taste of music and like-minded um and this was kind of the ethos of our party and our brand um and you know it obviously things take time to develop and i think it wasn't until 2007 2008 where it really kind of where people were noticing what we were doing you know um i think it's we were still at that era doing parties and nightclubs we hadn't taken it to the warehouse um you know department um yeah, sure. I mean, that's a that's a key uh, area that I want to talk yeah, about, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But like, because I mean, like the kind of backdrop to this, right, is like in the period between uh, 99 and 2006, like loads of clubs shut in New York, didn't they? Loads of venues shut down. Yeah, it was, I think, you know, early, early 2000s was kind of like when that happened, 9-11 and Giuliani just went after Peter Gation to make him a focus of like kind of bring him down and shut everything up you know it really changed everything i remember there was like a lot of years man that there was just nothing and there was this stupid cabaret law that they uh brought back from back in the day that um you know div it made sure that basically it's such a stupid love that white people would not dance with black people or latinos you know um, and they were really enforcing it. They would go down, see if like people were dancing, you know, give them fines, like tickets. And it was, it was, it was really dumb, you know? So, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, cause obviously, you know, you're, this is the period that you're, you know, really getting into the scene and sort of establishing the contacts that would you know, enable you to to run parties. So was that? I mean, like, what was the kind of psychological effect in the dance scene of of those sort of moves by the authorities? I mean, it must have been really negative. Yeah, obviously, it's uh, you know, if you look at how New York is today with the amount of clubs and events, and now they have a nightlife mayor, 
we didn't have any of that back then. You know, it was very frowned upon, um, you know, from uh, especially the police, you know, the city. Uh, but it's, I guess they started realizing that, you know, this is, I mean, New York's always been a hub, you know. why? What are you going to do, shut everything down and not let people enjoy themselves? Um, I think, I think uh, you know, it really took some time to have it to what it's become today, you know. And I think what we did, it certainly was part of that architectural kind of thing where, like, it led the way of what's happening today, you know, with our parties and stuff, yeah. Okay, so how do you get to doing these crazy warehouse venues then like what it always completely blew my mind as to how you guys were able to do this like tell me tell me yeah tell me how how this happened um you know a lot of people at the time were kind of still based in manhattan so brooklyn um was like this playground like bushwick especially there was just it was just desolate it was dark it was kind of like abandoned there was just you know uh, wholesale factories or like factories or like art studio you know what i mean it was like just nothing was going on there like you know you would tell a taxi driver if you were going to one of these parties in brooklyn hey uh i'm gonna bushwick they'll tell you no but if you say hey i'm gonna i'm going to williamsburg that all right cool and then as you get to williamsburg you're like no 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 keep going keep and they would freak out you know so that kind of was an open palette for us because we're like, okay, there's, there's this whole playground here to do stuff. And then we, we, we just ended up doing things, you know, over there and got a team together. Um, you know, we had oxygen lighting works, which was our main sound and lighting company that we were working with. And it really made a difference. Like we turned the shitty ass fucking warehouse and, make into a nightclub for a night with this massive disco ball in the middle. But like, you know, and then I remember when we first started doing parties because we didn't have the funds, we would find the venue, go set up the place ourselves, do the event, break down the party, and then go drive the trucks back to the rentals and then come back. And then it was like, I can't imagine doing that today, man. The energy, the energy that we have. <laughs> but I mean, so so were were you just able to do that because of the the situation that the city was in then? Because I mean, to actually, the first time I played for you guys, it was in Manhattan, though, which was a couple of years after this, actually. But yeah, you, we would just find a uh, man. I, we would just find spaces that were available that nobody was renting, and just do it. You know, um, how we did it. Uh, Man, there's so many scenarios. I mean, I think in 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 the t- almost twelve years of doing parties, a lot of them were renegade style. You know, it was, um, you know, we we had a very successful run. I think it's, you, you know, what it is. It's like if you really put your mind to it and you really want to focus on something and do it, uh, we kind of did that, and it, it became such a rush. We're like, we're like, damn, that warehouse party was sick. Let's do another one next weekend. Okay, you want to do another one the weekend after? It was literally like that. It kind of felt almost like you, you're gambling, because you are gambling, you know, at the end of the day. It's like, you know, it's... Uh, but the good thing, you know, uh, Paul, at that time when we were doing those parties, there wasn't there wasn't much people doing parties. There was us, there was the bunker, you know, and there was Resolute. So, and all of us used to go to each other's parties for the most part. 
now it's like uh, there's so many promoters, so many clubs, so many crews. It's you know, it's uh, the demographics and and what's happening has, has changed completely. So I mean, you must have got busted a few times, though, presumably. Yeah, I think in the twelve years, six, which is not bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's alright <laughs> how many parties were you doing a year you must have been doing 8 or 10 or something fuck man no man what 8 or 10 we did like every 2 weeks every week like I think I, th- I think we did like man to be honest I think we must have done 350 parties so how do you how do you not get busted I mean is there a, is there a certain amount of um uh, I don't know. You just gotta, you just gotta know, you just gotta know the right people. I guess that's how you let's say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. But how do you, how does this develop though? Like, how do you go from, you know, just you know, being a advertising guy to running these crazy? I mean, is it just a case of like force of will or like? I mean, what what kind of back end work did you have to do to get to the point where you did know the right people? You just gotta go out and meet people, man. Uh, that's that's the that's the most important thing. You gotta go out. You gotta meet uh, what's happening in the scene. You gotta see what's what's hot in terms of music. Hear different sound systems. You know what records are being played. Um, it's really kind of uh, a brainstorm. Uh, you know, uh, thing of different elements. Um, you know, you kind of have to study all of that. Um, I think also, you know, for me, I'm, I'm very like. I've got a lot of friends and, and it's like I'm, uh, I used to be a very outgoing guy but it's kind of you know you kind of build like a crowd right and then you kind of say hey look look I'm doing this and you know with not many options happening in those days you know the weekends people want to come and let loose you know like they've they've had a shitty week they've had a good week you know they, they want to come meet their friends we were the spot you know one of the spots to do all that so there's a lot of factors that really make what your party is going to become like an essential and and, and 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 a legendary night you know for example like people are going to talk about it and that, that's what kind of we liked you know people would leave and just the next week hey man I had the best time of my life you know sound was on point djs were good you know lighting was amazing i met so-and-so person uh i got i i met my wife at your party we had kids now you know so uh, <laughs> it's really cool to hear those kind of stories you know and, and uh i'm grateful for a lot of opportunities and you know it did open a lot of doors you know for for different things in life you know so so just be a bit more specific. Was there a was there a party that made you think, "Wow, this is like an early party that made you think, "Wow, this is really happening now. This is really something." Like, what was the first moment where you thought, "Fuck yeah, this is this is awesome." I think you know, as our parties, uh, there was this really cool nightclub uh, called Love and Cielo, and you know, when we started doing those and Bar Thirteen, which was a it was like a small bar in uh, Manhattan, when we started seeing like different crews coming out you know you had like uh you know the the central south american uh, people coming you had the french people uh coming you had uh eastern europeans coming uh english people like australians it kind of like was like okay we're doing something right you know and we it was a very kind of thing where like you would have to email RSVP and we would kind of really see who's who's coming to our events. So, um, you know, a lot of it was word of mouth as well. 
um, in the inner circles. Right. That's okay. That's I I'd actually forgotten about that. Yeah. So it was it was called black market membership, and actually was something that you had to commit. It wasn't so much of a ticket buying thing, right? But you no. had to, you know, set, as you said, RSVP. Yeah. So was that something that you did? Was that sort of out of necessity, or was it something that you did like it was a conscious effort to sort of almost like vet the audience? Um. I think it's a bit of both, you know. I think it's also to kind of just see, who, you know, who's going to be coming, you know. And, like, um, you know, we we had a very strict policy about that and, and, and we kept it that way for a very long time. And I think it added to, you know, what the party would turn out like as well, you know. So uh, we would let... There was no discrimination on of who could come in or, and 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 who was joining the party, but you know we did want to see what kinds of people were coming. You know, we did ask questions. You know, who are you coming to see? What you're here to do? Um, and I think it's also part of the ethos of you know how our party became popular at that time, because you know like people like that kind of thing where they're like oh man you know there's this party going on you you have to be you know you got to sign up and you know they're gonna write you back and where the fuck is it i don't know where it is we'll find out the day of the you know there was all this kind of mysteriousness you know behind it you know yeah i mean that's just awesome right i mean that's a difficult trick to pull off but if you can do it then it really just adds something extra right that kind of adds sense of anticipation before you go into something because you know like I, I would watch these documentaries and like videos on like the old acid house scene in the uk and it was like the flyer would have an address and it was the phone booth and then it would have a number and then you call it and then you would go somewhere like you know what i mean it's like you, you you would go one place and then find out it was somewhere else you know it was like this element of surprise you know and some places we did it was like man you would not want to be there late at night in brooklyn by yourself you know <laughs> and but you know we we had a good team we had a good security and um we had good people behind what we were doing you know i think it was uh it was a very special time in my life you know and i i i will always remember those those years of of throwing you know such uh amazing parties that people still today are talking to me about you know it's a good feeling to hear that so yeah give me a give me a couple of your favorite moments from those parties or favorite sets or anything that stands out to you um your parties were actually really fun because um as one of them i'll give an example because it wasn't like straight four on the floor it had like a variety there was like that dubstep stuff coming in there was like techno there was like you know like raga dub kind of stuff and i really liked it because it was like you would come to hear like the whole journey you know um i think we had some amazing parties at that one place remember that arabic wood shop the 23 meadow place i think you played there we did the uh, where was that it was in bushwick it was a it was a wood shop um we did we did one of the uh the nights for your label over there oh yeah i uh, think i remember the one was it the one with shackleton shackleton yeah 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 that was that was like we did some memorable nights there we did some really cool nights at sunset park uh, there was one place we had right by the canal in the guanas which was like incredible it was like you know you probably <laughs> the water was nasty as hell but um you know you you probably see like mutated three three-eyed fishes like you know you would see on the simpsons um in there <laughs> but um you know we did uh, like the boat parties were special i really like the club parties as well you know i'm a big fan of clubs but 
um, you know, we did film studios as well down in Bushwick, and they were all special. You know, it's kind of like you go to one place, you have a venue, and each one is set up different. You know, so you got to get the sound system tuned in, uh, see if there's any like echo. You know, the lights have to be structured different. See what windows and everything, and the entrance, and uh, you know, it was like really cool to kind of work on all of that. Tell me about boat parties. I, I never went on one of your boat parties and there must be a different approach to an extent there. So how, how was that gone? So we would do the boat parties. Um, most of them were, f- they were the circle line crews that would leave from the west side um, and 42nd. But we also did the paddle wheel queen and a couple of others which were um, on the east side. And those were always great, man. They were... Um, you know, you you would be locked in on the boat for five hours, so it's a commitment. Well, that's that's the thing, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of yeah. scary. But I, man, I remember some parties would get off the boat, and you've just been like, you know, having a couple of drinks and whatnot, and you get off the boat, and you're just swaying, you know, especially if the seas were shaky. You it, it would kind of you kind of be shaky for like two hours till you get recalibrated, you know, when you're back on land. But those boat parties were cool. We we kind of um, with our sound team, Oxygen. Because we were we played a lot of records, we set up turntables on the boat, and they were done in a good way where the needles were not skipped. Can you believe that? Yeah, yeah. But it was it was really cool because we had like sometimes two floors, like huge D and B or modern audio systems, and you know the the landscape is cool, especially like if you're from out of town or even if you're a New Yorker, you know, like you get to pass by the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island and all those tourist kind of, you know, viewpoints. But, you know, I'd never been that close to the Statue of Liberty until I like really went on the boat, you know, like I'd seen it from far. But I never, I never did the whole tour of going up on it. But they're special, man, you know, outdoor, like outdoor parties, there's something great. So a question I had written down was, um, like to what extent, is there a, what, what took us in, was there a legacy of underground parties like before you guys started doing them? I mean, obviously, warehouse parties have been around forever, but like it's in New York specifically, like we talked about coming out of the era of these amazing purpose built clubs with these amazing sound systems, which just sat in there full time. But like, how much do you guys, how, how much were you fitting into a legacy and how much were you kind of creating your own thing there? Well, I did read about, um, just from kind of following uh, Frankie Bones and his and, and and Adam X was how they used to do all like kind of the uh, warehouse parties uh, um, and they would do it like amazing and then kind of when they kind of brought like that that thing that was happening in UK you know they brought it to the US at that time but you know when we were doing the clubs I think it was like 2007 there was this promoter that came out, um, uh, Jenny, uh, used to do the mini moo parties. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to do these parties and I'm going to announce one day before. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know? And she came from, from Germany and, uh, you know, I saw how she did it. And like, she literally promoted one day and she would just get fucking thousands of people at her party. And I was like, okay i'm like this i haven't seen this happen i've just read about it i was like so, so what what year what year are we in there this is like 2007 ish 2008 kind of roughly okay. yeah right 
and that kind of was okay. So, so you'd already started doing your your things, but not in the underground space. Yes, itself, right? correct. So that kind of was like, okay, I'm like, this is pretty interesting. And then, you know, we I remember we've been like posting the party, putting flyers at the shops, posters all over town for a month, and then and then I saw this I saw this formula. I'm like, okay, I'm like, this is pretty cool, you know. But, um, you know, that's kind of when we started doing it as well. Right. Okay. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. Like, like looking at it from afar, that's an amazing trick to pull off, but it's not straightforward. Otherwise, everyone would do it, right? So No, no. It just kind of really, I was like, okay, I'm like, this is pretty cool, you know? And then I just was very, like, the spaces that she was pulling out at that time. I remember there was one of them, it was like, it was in a Croatian church and I was like, what the fuck is this? You know? So is it just a case of, I mean, I'm just wondering like, you know, if you can kind of like quantify how you do that. Is it just to create a case of, you have that kind of scarcity value of doing the, the really limited sort of from promo time and then just making sure that the event is absolutely amazing. So the next time people are waiting for it, is, is, is it just a case of that? People are waiting for it. Yeah. 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 They, 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 they loved it so much. They're like, when, when the hell is the next one? You know? Really tricky. And, and actually, you know, it gets me thinking about how things are now and, and how the, sort of the club market has developed in the UK and in Europe, generally speaking, how things are ticketed now and how you've got to sell tickets so far in advance. And it really, I think you, you just trying to create that sense of spontaneity around an event is just basically impossible, right? That kind of real kind of anticipation, when is it, when is it, when is it? and then you find out and suddenly it's here and like, you know, like it's, is, is, is there a way of like getting back to something like that? Do you Man, think? that would be amazing. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, I've said this to a lot of friends that kind of run their own nightclubs or, or, or parties, you know, like that. If you've got something that's really good, you don't have to agree to having a lot of high fees artists, you know, because, you know, take, take a nightclub, right? It's like uh, that, that's just amazing sound and the everything's attention to detail you're going to have people coming knocking at your door, right? At the end of the day. And 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 that is a good sign because you, you're doing something right. So I think, uh, you know, selling tickets so far in advance, it's, it's you, you have to, if you've got like some sort of massive overhead, you know, like I get it, you know, like obviously you don't want to run out of pocket for what you're doing and making, but, you know, that spontaneity, part i really miss it you know i haven't seen it in some time you know but um it does happen here and there don't get me wrong but you know it kind of was that even ones that i would go to i was like man where am i going i can't wait <laughs> it's a bumblefuck of nowhere you know so i think it's i think it's there it's there it's there and 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 people do it you know but it's not it's not commercialized let's say it that way you know yeah i mean so yeah what's your observation about new york then generally as it is now it talks about miami now but like i mean like with new york i mean talked about there's there's lots of events going on there's lots of parties but like how do you see it i think i think new york is is a is it will always be for me like uh the center like one of the major centers of dance music um especially what it is now it's like 
you know, you've got parties if you want to go. So there, there's two kinds of people that are going to these parties, right? So you've got people that are going f- more for the music end, right? And then you've got people that want to go out to get the experience, right? So those kind of places, there's they go full on with the decor, production. You know, it's like a labyrinth kind of. You go into different rooms. Um, you know, they want to be with who's like influencers and all that stuff, right? So you've got both these kind of people, right? And sometimes both these people meet at those parties and sometimes they're, they're separate parties, you know? But, you know, for me now living in, in Miami, I go to New York every, like often because, um, you know, I've lived there so long, I'm playing there regularly and I'm playing different parties as well. And it's it, it's cool, you know, something has, everyone has something different and I think as an artist, you should go and play those different parties, you know? Um, I think uh, I think it's good for everybody, you know? It's good for you as an artist. It's good for, it's good for other people to have you come and play. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, man, this has been great. Just one more thing, one more question. Give me your top three moments from black market parties over the year. Pick, pick out three either sets or just something that happened something cool that happened uh we we played um we did this uh um halloween party it was get spooky with uh the resolute guys we used to team up for halloween and um there was we one of the partners uh, our friend nicola had got uh, a function one system that came on an 18-wheeler truck from Chicago because there was none available uh, locally at the time in New York. And they came and installed uh, like a massive, I think it was like six, eight to eight-point sound system. And <laughs> above was this artist studio, this like really famous artist. I'm forgetting his name, but he had these huge canvases and he had leaned them on the pillars of, of you know, the infrastructure of his, of his art studio upstairs. And the sound was so crazy, man. It shook the entire building. Like I'm talking about like I'm talking about like shit was falling on your head, you know what I mean? And like we're like, what the fuck? And the next day we didn't when everything was done, everyone's like, Oh man, this party was amazing. Um we got a complaint from the artist upstairs and he said that he had just painted all these massive canvases for an art exhibit that he was doing and all of them fell on top of each other so like the paint oh man I was like this is so bad you know (laughs) Um, what else is there Uh, there was uh, oh we had the the Winomi brothers was actually pretty special because they you remember the Winomi brothers Uh, Robag and Monkey Mafia they kind of were like they were fighting when we had them and they were scheduled for a six hours set and then when we figured out that they both were decided that this was their final set together because of differences and um i remember memo one of my partners he went up and he's like he looked at me he's like dude this is the end and i go i know he's like i think these guys should play longer because they're not going to play together again He's like, let, let me see if we can extend the space. So we were able to expand, extend the the outdoor place that we're doing the event. And we looked at them. We said, guys, 
you want to play it for another six hours so they went on and played 12 hours and it's literally like one was drinking vodka like <laughs> upset the other one was crying and but this but but the set that they played was phenomenal man like it was just like dmc kind of turntablism mixing cutting throwing records in the back like they were just they made a statement man you know like that was really incredible for me um and I think also, you know, just we debuted a lot of artists, you know. Um, I had like Cassie for the first time, Margaret Digas. We had like, uh, you know, the Winomi brothers. We uh, we we did like Intervisions live, you know, like just kind of a bit of everything, you know. Um, so, and it was different types of dance music as well you know like from dj kodze we got rodhad we had like apollonia we did laurent garnier's lbs thing you know um we had your residency we did craig richard's residency uh you know lee barge played for us sasha andy we played for us so a lot of like influential people that we would buy records off that really kind of were the guys that we were bringing you know Awesome, man. Well, Tamer, thanks for your time. This has been great. Yeah, man. I really appreciate the, the the chat. It was good to chat with you. Yeah, that was Tamer. What an interesting conversation. What a good one that was. Great to hear his takes on the state of the vinyl market generally, the state of the scene in Miami, also the scene in New York, and just so good to be able to dig into that history of doing those black market membership parties, which were, as I said, absolutely awesome parties to be a part of. It was one of the favourite things that I've done as a DJ over the years was playing those shows. So yeah, big ups to Tamar, and um, interested to see where he goes next with his career. I want to go to the shop the next time I'm in Miami. I haven't been to Miami for ages, actually. You know, I'm going to pass by there next time I'm there. Okay, we're just about done here. Like I said at the top, you can support show on Patreon if you like what we're doing here. We do need support. So yeah, do that. Patreon.com slash scuba official to get involved. If you don't want to do that, it's also cool. Hit the five-star button wherever you listen to this podcast. That really does help the show too. Follow the Spotify playlist. There is a link to the show notes in that playlist. And join the Discord server, hotflushcongress.com slash Discord. Right, I'm done. So see you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. 
So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.